This past Tuesday, I had the privilege of meeting an old friend from Texas. He was in town for a visit. Um, He is a friend from Texas, but he is an unusual friend from Texas in that I never actually met him and have ever seen him in the state of Texas. Um, I've only seen him outside of the great state of Texas. Those words are all capitalized in my notes there, great state of Texas, just so you know that. (laughs) We've only ever been together in other places, but those other places we've been together are interesting. We were uh, roommates together at the Air Force Academy, which implies with it in, in certain things that were endured as part of our life together. And so when we come back together, we do the usual male thing. We begin with an insult, talk about who's getting fat, who's getting bald, um, who's both of those things. And after doing that, we begin to catch up on life. We, we, we share in, in, in features of our life, what's been happening with us, what's, what's going on, who we've been around, what old friends we've seen. And we can, we can do that for a very long time. And it's a very comfortable situation. Even though a person I see maybe once or every year or every other year, we can slip into this old relationship. And we can do so being incredibly different people. I started making a list of all the ways in which we are different. We are very different people. We are different ethnically spiritually, vocationally, politically, relationally, there's, there's not really a common point of contact in our life, but for the fact that we have shared experiences together that were painful, that, that were brutal, that were unpleasant, and having endured those things together, it has drawn us together, and it's sort of a permanent bond of what we experienced and endured that, that makes us friends forever, at least for this life. And trials and afflictions and accomplishments together, even when they happen over a short period of time, they, they can make an indelible, an, an unforgettable impression on you. And nowhere is that so true and so strong as when it happens to the people of the Lord. When they share trials and afflictions and accomplishments together, but those trials and afflictions and accomplishments are all for the sake of the kingdom of God and they are done with a shared faith in Jesus Christ. Those are truly forever friends. They create deep affections. And tonight when we, we, we listen again to the words of the Apostle Paul when he speaks to the church in Thessalonica, a church he was with for only a short time, but who endured things together and who shared things with one another that are eternal and creates an affection that we should appreciate for ourselves in the body of Christ here at Woodruff Road. And so let's pray and let's ask the Spirit to, to lead us to a better understanding and application of this truth. Our great God, we do ask you, Lord, for what you alone can provide, your Holy Spirit, to come to us, to work in us, to cause us to receive what you have for us. Lord, we pray tonight that our hearts would be instructed in your ways in the fellowship that you designed for the body of Christ here, that we would be convicted and we would grow because of that conviction and our love for one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please look back with me in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, but the, the very end of that chapter, verse 17, where Paul is reminding us again of his relationship that he has with the church in Thessalonica. And he speaks to them of the fact that he has been taken away from them. And, and, and it, that tells you from the very beginning that there's something important about the connection between the two of them. There's something that's been lost that they had once enjoyed. And anyone who has ever been in love knows what this feels like. Paul has, has testified to the fact by his prayer life that he is constantly thinking about them. And, and now Paul is, is sharing with them his, his, his thoughts of them, that he has remembered them and remembered them well. And for those of you who have ever been in love, who've had this, this kind of 
this moment together where you were drawn together, you, you shared something that created this, this, this impression that left you thinking about that other person, there was nothing better than to find out later on from them that they had been thinking about you too. And such is the case here. Paul has not just been thinking about them, he has been praying for them to the triune God, giving thanks for, for what they were and what God had accomplished among them. And when Paul is, is doing this, when he is recounting what the Lord has done there, this is, this is not the Apostle Paul taking a victory lap as if he had accomplished something on their behalf. They, they, he didn't go back to Presbytery and find Peter and start bragging about his numbers in Thessalonica. Instead, he has he is, he is come to a place of, of loving these people because of what they've gone through, what they've shared together. It's a deep affection. And and, and I want you to scroll through this with me and just using technology words there, but just looking through the, the different words that Paul uses to show how strong that affection was. First thing he mentions there in verse 17, that, that it was a, a painful separation. He says, I've been taken away from you, but not in heart. And the word he actually uses there, the Greek word for that taken away is orphaned. As he was orphaned from this people. It, it was the idea of someone who has lost this family connection, something terrible has been broken because they were once so near to one another. He says as well in verse 17, he says that, that, we, were, that we were endeavoring more eagerly to see your face with great desire. There's this, there's this intention on his part to be face to face with them. He uses the word face several times actually in, in this passage, reminding them that, that there's something about being in the presence of one another that he desperately wanted to be able to share with them, just to see the expression on their face. He continues by, again, the great desire he has, the fact that he wanted to come to you. He's expressing this, this strong desire for a reunion with them. He's remembering that they, used, they had this time where they were in each other's company and there were so many things that were wonderful about that. And he wants that to be the case again. And he's not content until that is the case. And then he throws in the, the, these terms of affection that you read in verse 19. Just, just look at that verse with me. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. If you're, if you're in the, 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 the Thessalonican church, you're hearing Paul say these things. You might even want to blush a little bit. He's just piling up all these terms to testify to his affection and the only thing that keeps you from blushing is that you have an equal fondness for the Apostle Paul. But Paul can't come to them. He's, he, he's not allowed to come to, to them as much as he might want to come to them. And what's the reason for it? What's stopping him? Well, Paul doesn't give us many details. He doesn't go into specifics about the thing that was keeping them apart, why he was trapped in one place and unable to go to them, except for the one reason that he does give. It wasn't just that he ran into complications that kept them apart, but that there was someone who had thwarted his coming to fellowship with them again. And that person was Satan. Paul says specifically, Satan hindered us. And when you read that in verse 18, it gives a different color to, to how we think about the things that are keeping, apart, keeping them apart. It wasn't just, he didn't just say we're just providentially hindered. That's an appropriate thing to say. But he says what was keeping them apart was Satan. And he's reminding them that, 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 that Satan has purposes in thwarting the love and affection between members of the body of Christ. 
We learn from the book of Job that providentially God can be over this and order this, that God can well use Satan to accomplish his ultimate purposes. One of the purposes that we obviously see for us is that Paul, rather than being with them, is writing them a letter. That letter is now in our hands. Now that, that letter is being proclaimed to you, the gospel is, is, is coming to God's people out of that. But that doesn't stop Paul in his inspired sense of writing this letter to them, of saying that Satan was hindering him from being with them. And it, and it should color how we view our relationships with one another. Such was one of the discoveries that we made through the COVID years. Remember two weeks to slow the spread, right? We're going to back off, separate for just a few minutes, just let things calm down just a little bit, and then we're going to come back together. And then that bled on into other weeks and then to other months and in some places even into years where people are being kept apart. Churches are, 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 being, are, being, are no longer being worshipped in. Schools are being closed down. People are not seeing family members and family members that they love. And that was not because of any proven scientific hist- sort of you know, historical success that had taken place in the past. It wasn't, it wasn't because this was such an obvious conclusion that it had to be made, but it was simply satanic. No one had a greater interest in keeping people apart and keeping people masked up than Satan so that you could not see one another face to face. And that's not to, to cast aspersions on any particular scientist or, or political advisor or anyone else, but to know that even if, if everything is completely above board, it's just this, this, this virus that appears from nowhere and causes people to do the very thing that happened, to separate from one another, one another to no longer worship, to no longer see faces. Satan was rejoicing wherever and however it came. The same kind of satanic influences are, are constantly at work in history. When you think of, uh, of Roman Catholic endeavors to create monasteries where people would pull out of society, they would separate from others and they would go off into enclaves by themselves so that they could be apart from influencing the world, that's satanic. When people come and form sequestered religious communities, when they think that if I can just get away from other people and just get with the right special few people, a very tiny number, then we'll be okay and then the the kingdom will prosper. That is satanic. When someone says, they take the posture of becoming a lone ranger Christian. When they say, I don't need other people. In fact, other people are just a bad influence on me. I I, I just can do much better spiritually by myself. That is also satanic. It doesn't matter what form it comes to us in. Whenever we make conclusions that go against Scripture, it is coming from Satan. What does Scripture teach us? Writer of Hebrews told us very clearly, and let us not consider, or and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the matter of some, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The call is to assembly, to not stop meeting together, to to return in a regular pattern week by week to be together. John 17, 15, Jesus says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. The goal is not escape. The goal is to be with people, but to not be owned by Satan. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. That was not his intention to separate from all people. The goal is never to separate from people, but separation from sin. Separation what is false among us. But 
God's intention is for us to have dealings with the world and especially to have dealings with one another. Paul could never have fulfilled his mission among the Macedonians. He could never have come to Thessalonica to preach the gospel if he couldn't be near sinners. But he came and he declared God's word. And when he came and declared God's word, they embraced that word. They believed that word. They hoped in that word. And it was drawing them together such that Paul can write to this church in Thessalonica. And what does he want to say to them? Well, look again, verse 19. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. You see how Paul is, is embracing them in this moment for, for who they are as those who have, who have put their faith in Christ. And he's also embracing them looking forward to the last day. He has, a, he has a, an already and a not yet. A, a now and looking into the end of all things and when they are with Christ there. He's longing for the in-person meeting that, that he could have with them. He wants desperately to be in their presence. But he also knows there's going to be a day that comes when they will never be separated. Where they will always be able to see each other face to face. Where the fellowship will never be broken. And these are two massively important features of Christianity. There's, on the first hand, there's a social feature of our faith. The fellowship of believers is an integral aspect of of who we are as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and what we are saved to. The scriptures call us the ecclesia, the called out ones, the congregation who are called to worship God. And as congregants, we are called together to do specific things. We're called together to worship together. To break bread together, to weep together, to celebrate together, to comfort one another, to encourage one another, to build each other up. Believers are called to keep short accounts, to deal with sin quickly so that you can be back together with each other. Christians grieve over excommunication as much as they do death because a person is being cut off from fellowship. It's very clear when you read the message of Scripture, it is not a self-actualizing, individually focused document. It is, it is meant to draw people together from the very beginning and to the very end. Psalm 68 says, God is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation, and God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious, dry, the rebellious dwell in a dry land. His, his intention is to put us in family. To give us fellowship, to make us have friends and those who are near to us, who, who love us, and that we can love by sacrificing for their benefit. The second great commandment, the second table of the law, depends upon you having a neighbor that you interact with. There must be those that are around you, that are near to you, that allow you to fulfill that commandment to love. The first feature is that it is a social fabric, but we're so much more than that as well. There's also the eschatological feature of our faith. Again, Paul says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Paul is, is looking at the church with an eye to their future. He's, he, he's recognizing that, that they have a, a contingent or a dependent future, that their future depends on their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Their future with Paul depends upon their knowing and clinging to Christ until the very end. This is also a feature of the faith that they've embraced. And this is so fundamental to everything that we are, is that that there is this looking to Christ and recognizing his coming judgment. Let me remind you of a few texts that, that point us in this direction. Matthew 16. Jesus testifies just before his transfiguration, before his entry into his 
into Jerusalem, the, the fulfillment of his earthly mission, he says this to the disciples. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. What Jesus tells is that he is coming back. He is coming in judgment. He's coming with his holy ones, his, his angels. He's going to render two people according to their works. Peter, when he's in Caesarea, testifies to the same things in Acts chapter 10, verse 42. He says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness through his name. Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Paul testifies to the same thing. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Friends, there is a coming judgment for every one of us, and that judgment is going to take place in Christ. The only safe way to face that judgment is, is if you will do as Paul does as we read him in Philippians 3.9. He says his, his desire is to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The reason I say this is because nothing could be worse than to be a part of this fellowship, of this, this body here at Woodruff Road, and not share in eternity. To enjoy Michelle's cooking, to delight in friendships, to go to poundings and baby showers and funerals and pig pickings and Bible studies and summer camp and VBS and all of those things. To have all of that rich social fabric in your life, all these kind of things that, that make life more enjoyable and yet not to have Christ. Nothing is more disheartening to evangelical pastors when they hear someone say something along the lines of, you know, there, there are a lot of people that don't worship like us that are going to be in heaven. And when they say that, 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 it's not that there's not some truth to, to what they're saying. We're not saying that you have to worship at Woodruff Road to go to heaven. That is absolutely not the case. But it misses the point. It's, it, it's not how people worship that gets them into heaven. It's who they worship. There, there's no particular custom. There's no kind of thing that, that we go through as a particular vehicle to get you into glory. Other than to proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And those who believe that, who embrace that, want to give him that worship that he most deserves. And so hopefully we're doing the kind of worship that he is most pleased with. But the point is Christ, not that, that someone's getting into heaven by their worship. Heaven is about not with, with, with being with us, it's about being with Christ. And when you're with Christ and, and those around you are with Christ, then you are all together. The one draws you together. Union with the one is what brings you, makes you a family that's eternal and everlasting, and in glory and in joy. We'll look at verse 1 in chapter 3. Paul talks about the, the way that he deals with his pain, with the, with the separation. His, his way to do that, and, and with this lack of technology he has, he's just going to send his brother Timothy. He says, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. Paul and 
and Silas, Silvanus, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. Paul sends Timothy. He is one who is qualified for the work. He's this pastor in training. He is a, a brother in ministry and a, and a servant of God. And now he is going to go to them because he believes the same gospel. He has the same hope that they have that they shared with Paul when they were there. And Timothy is going to remind them of that hope. Some translations add the words that he was a, he was a deacon or a minister or a servant as well in describing him. And sometimes we, have, we need to stop and we need to think about what did it mean to be a companion of Paul? This was no, Paul was no picnic to work with. To be a co-laborer in the gospel with Paul was to be a magnet for conflict, for opposition, for persecution. You're very likely to end up in prison if Paul is your traveling partner. And Paul is not even embarrassed about the fact. Paul says, you yourselves know that we were appointed for this. He knows this is part of the deal. This is the road that he's on. This is where he's going to go. And so anyone who's a companion of Paul is going to go down that road. Timothy is one of those companions. But he's up for the challenge. He, he's willing to, to go this way. He's embraced the affliction. Think about how, how little that's actually a part of the message in most of what you hear in, in preaching that goes on. If we were going to you know, consult with the paid class of consultants who, who their job is to, is to put together a message for you that's going to, going to win people, attract people to your product, I don't think they would do it like this. I, I asked for a little help from ChatGPT again, um, you know, technology time for Pastor Anderson. And I asked it, if, can you create a commercial for me, kind of along the lines of a medical ad that you see on TV that, 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 that markets the gospel of Jesus Christ? And... Here are a couple of reminders that it might not get, so I threw some of those in. And so here's what it gave me back, and, and I, I, I tweaked this just a little bit. I'll go ahead and confess up front, but here's what it gave me back. Introducing the gospel of Jesus Christ, empowering your soul with divine truth. Are you searching for life-changing spiritual solutions to nourish your soul? Look no further than the gospel of Jesus Christ, a transformative message designed to address the deepest needs of your heart. With the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can find meaning, purpose, and eternal hope. There's some truth in that. Based on timeless wisdom and divine revelations, the gospel of Jesus Christ offers a profound understanding of life, love, and salvation. There's truth. Whether you're seeking forgiveness, seeking guidance, or seeking a personal relationship with God, the gospel of Jesus Christ has the answers you're looking for. Then there's the warning. While embracing the gospel proves effective and rewarding for many people, it has not been independently verified by clinical studies it is not endorsed by any government agency. <laughs> Further, the gospel is contraindicated for those with unbelieving relatives, those pursuing wealth, and those unwilling to part with their former manner of life. Believers should be aware some recipients of the gospel have had less than favorable outcomes as far as this world is concerned. Be further advised, sharing your faith while a common result of true belief is likely to produce misunderstandings, offense, opposition, persecution, and it's highly likely, in some cases, for people living in some communities or under certain governments, death. That probably wouldn't sell a lot, would it? You included those, those little details, but Paul does not mind those details because he knows he was appointed for those details. Jesus had warned his disciples, John 16, 2, they will put you out of the synagogue. Just the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers service to God. That's a tough road to go down when, when that's what you're setting up 
for yourself. Paul's calling, the beginning of his ministry, we read about in Acts 9.16, and there the Lord says, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. The suffering wasn't optional at any point for Paul. It was going to happen. The Lord had declared that was his future. Paul would testify in 1 Corinthians 4.9, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. And he didn't leave it to himself, not just the apostles. He said, this, is, this belongs to you. He wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It is not optional as a believer to suffer persecution. And if there's not some kind of persecution, some kind of opposition, some kind of even mocking that comes into your life, then it says that you have a very private gospel. That whatever Christ has done to you has not been enough for you to tell anyone else about him. To make you live any differently in this world. In which case you're doing it wrong. People need to know your connection to Christ. It needs to show up in some way. It has to be something that manifests itself because he can't leave you unchanged. If the Spirit of God indwells you, you must be a different person than you would otherwise be. Well, Paul is encouraged. He, he's, he, he sends Timothy and Timothy comes back and then we read in verse 6 this. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love that you Always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our afflictions and distress, we were comforted concerning you. How? By your faith. What comforted Paul was not that they were in health or that they were prospering. It wasn't that, that their, their faith and love, which was, what, what was great in terms of their relationship, he didn't get a diagnosis that was favorable or hear about their bank account. It wasn't the, the fact that they had a celebrity attending their church or something like that, that that he was excited about. The one thing that, that, that made Paul rejoice was their faith, is that they were that he was comforted concerning them because of their faith. It was intact. And so Paul says in verse 8, For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Paul connects his very life to the well-being of their souls. There's nothing better that he could hear than to hear that they were standing fast in the Lord. They were holding on and not giving up on Christ. Parents, you need to to appreciate this from that perspective. Elders as well. Paul's priority is not pain, but persevering. It's not their comfort. It's the the fact that they're steadfast in the Lord. And listen to what he says when he he wrote to the church of Rome. Romans chapter 5, he says... Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. We need to be okay with pain in our children. We need to be okay with pain in ourselves. So much as our suffering is is pointing us to Christ. We come near the end when we look in verse 11. Paul's first benediction of this letter. Paul actually is in a very benedictory mood whenever he he speaks to the Thessalonians. And, And this is kind of an interesting 
benediction, it's, it's sort of a double benediction. It goes in two directions. It's self-referential. You don't see a lot of benedictions that are like that. But he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Again, he's not giving up on his prayer to be with them, to, to be reunited with his church. But then he goes on, he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Again, his priority is revealed. It's togetherness. It's that, that, that love among them matters, that they be drawn to one another. He's, he's reminding them that preaching still matters. The proclamation that they heard, the faith that they hold on to, that that consists, that, that continue. And he also wants to remind them that holiness matters. The part of, of the work that the Lord is doing is connecting love and holiness together. Is that how they are being instructed, how they're being drawn together, what they are practicing among themselves is actually contributing to their holiness. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 4, 8. He says, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. I think you could say in a multitude of ways. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, and thinks no evil. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It's sometimes translated. Love also bears all things. Paul even more clearly says it this way in Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has done what? He has fulfilled the law. To fulfill the law is to be holy. And Paul is saying these things are all going together. And of course that's true because our God who is all holy is also a God of love. And Paul concludes there, and this is a reminder of why we had the Old Testament reading. He he concludes with that reminder at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints, which was testified by Zechariah. The Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. There is an end. There is a reckoning. There is a coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that would be what I would remind you of by way of application. Three times in this section, Paul is going to reference the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter is very much going to be taken up with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants to remind you of what Christ had reminded his disciples of as well, that there is a master who is going to return. Again, remember the parable of the talents. The master goes, he, he leaves, but he, in, in the meantime, he entrusts the, the, the stewards, the, the servants, with a certain amount of money and requires of them to make good on it. And when he comes back, he wants an accounting, a reckoning. Some are told, well done, good and faithful servants. And some, at least one, is told that he is wicked for what he failed to do with what God had entrusted to him. Paul tells us, he says, servants, he says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2. You are stewards. You have an obligation. You were responsible before God. He had these same concerns for the church in Philippi, the, the church that he had visited before Thessalonica. He's prayed some of the same prayers. First, or Philippians 1.9, he says this, I pray that your love may abound still more and more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Christ is coming. This is supposed to be part of your thinking. He does that two more times in, in, in the letter to, to the church of Philippi. 
Peter, as well, says in 2 Peter 3.14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Be found by him because the Lord is returning. James wrote, he says, You also be patient, establish for your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The Lord is coming back. John wrote in 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. You get the message? Every apostle wants you to know that the true faith is an expectant faith. It, it, it accounts for a final meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it calls us to live in this present age, in our present day. Even though it's been long since the day in which the apostles walked the earth and preached these messages, as that we are still expecting the Lord Jesus to return. And we are still living in light of the Lord Jesus' return. And then likewise, we want to set for ourselves the, in context the, the fellowship that Paul speaks of in two ways. First, there's a need and a reason to gather together, and that is for the special encouragement that takes place in God's design on the Lord Day. He has in mind teaching and preaching. Paul was longing to be with them so he could proclaim Christ to them again, so that matters in their faith could be settled, could be, could be shored up, could be affirmed and strengthened. Encouragement for this body starts when we gather together on the Lord's Day for worship, morning and evening, the first day of the week. It begins our week together, hearing a proclamation from the Word of God. God declaring His will for us, for our salvation and for how we live in this world. That shared teaching, that mutual experience of being under God's Word, of hearing the same gospel, creates an accountability. It grants a permission to to allow you to be in one another's life and to speak truth to each other. To remind you of what you've heard. To know that there is a common standard of law that governs us all. And it is God's law. But there's also a second aspect of being together that's part of of what Paul wants. Paul emphasizes physical physical presence. He wants faces. He wants to be able to see each other. And you know this is vital. This is essential to maintaining fellowship with people. It's Talking on FaceTime is great. You can see and you can hear Talking on the phone, sending text messages. They only work if you send emojis along with them so you know how the person feels. But there's nothing like seeing a person's face. Countenances are revealed. You know where you stand with people without them saying a word. You know if something's wrong, you need to minister to someone just by, by a small hesitation in how they say a single phrase. We need to be together. Midweek prayer meeting is a wonderful time, not only to to come under the word, but to do the work, to invest in that which Paul has been investing in so much, praying continually for this congregation. You own this congregation. You are are members of it. And you can pray for it and pray for all those who are going out from this church as well for the ministry of the gospel. That is a labor that you engage in together. There's nothing like praying together to know the heart of another person. And to encourage you to grow in your own prayer life. And there are those other things that we do that are less noble. Vacation, Bible school, sweet as it is, we know it's kind of a silly operation. A bunch of kids running around. I don't know how much they remember. But they do remember this. They remember they were with their friends. They remember that there were people who loved them and who ministered to them. And they had a wonderful time in the context of this community, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those things are true when we go to camp together. When we camp together, when we do whatever silly thing Pastor Dodds is organizing out by a lake, 
We all go do together. All of those things are drawing us together in ways that are helpful for us as the body of Christ to be and to become what we're called to be. That we might be holy before our God, that we might share in that one faith. And the fruit of that fellowship would be, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. You, all his saints, are to be included with the Lord Jesus Christ. That begins with faith and it continues with persistence and being together as the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we ask you again that you would stir up in our hearts to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, to not allow that to become our habit, but to be burdened to be in one another's presence. Lord, that we would be willing to do the hard work of guarding ourselves up, of making adequate preparations, of planning ahead, of going out of our way, of expending ourselves and costing ourselves greatly to be in the presence of the body of Christ. And Lord, as we do, would you give us delight in the presence of one another? Would you give us joy? Would you give us long-suffering and patience? Would you give us faithfulness, Lord, that we may persevere, that we may love one another, that we may be made holy, and that we may welcome the coming.